and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where are we coming from? Where are we going? When will I change this lead? We have an excellent guest on the podcast today. I cannot wait to talk to her. She entered the guest room with a bombshell that was awesome and real. So I'm excited to actually talk about real stuff. Hashtag life goals. Before we introduce her, I want to make sure we talk about the other panelists, just so you know who we are. I'm Richard Littower. I normally host this podcast. I'm here on behalf of Sustain. And then we also today have Alan Gunner, otherwise known as Gunner. I guess his last name is actually Gunn. Gunner, how are you doing? I'm good. Great to be here. Great to have you. We have Errol Fox. Errol, how are you? Hello, I'm doing good. Excited to chat with you all. We also have Eric Berry, who may join us for a couple of questions. Eric, how are you? Great. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have all of you. Your faces make my week. But we wouldn't be here if it was just talking between the four of us. Our guest today is Leslie Hawthorne. Leslie Hawthorne is a very well-known name in the open source circles with which Sustain moves. If you haven't heard her before or heard of her, this is going to be very exciting. She is the manager for the vertical communication strategy office or something in the office of the CTO <laughs> at Red Hat. Leslie, how are you? I am really, really excited to be here today. Thank you so much. I will correct that to the extremely long-winded and overly fancy pants sentence of manager, vertical community strategy, Red Hat's open source program office in the office of the CTO, which <laughs> is very long-winded. But it, at it's least okay. it's potentially useful. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you live in Germany, so long-winded titles are normal, right? It's surprised it's not all just one word. I'm just trying to imagine your business card with like the acronym at the end, like eight letters all tied together. <laughs> you know what the best part is? I have just refused to order business cards for a very, very long time because I figure, you know, save a tree. Although I do, I do miss good old analog paper. I've never had to to deal with that problem, but I think if I actually had to log into the system when I attempted to put in more than half of that, it would crash and burn, sadly. So I'm not taking down any crit systems, just as a policy. Very smart policy. Maybe a better question would be, now that we know what you do is called, could you describe for us what you do here? Sure. When I'm talking about the process of vertical community strategy, I'm going to start by explaining it by comparing it to what I consider to be traditional community management. And when we think about traditional community management, quote unquote, there's typically a community focused human who is looking at the universe from the perspective of how does my singular community engage with other entities? So that could be how do we engage with our users? How do we engage with our contributors? How do we engage with our documentation folks? How do we do marketing for our project? And when you're talking about vertical community management, the process is actually to consider how does an entire organization liaise with various different community groups in order to further their objectives. So I'll go ahead and use an actual example from Red Hat that I'm familiar with. So for our FSI vertical community architect, that's a question of how Red Hat maintains its relationships and its contributions across several different communities, including, for example, the FinTech Open Source Foundation where we talk to folks about their overall open source strategy, contribution policies, and we also contribute code to their cloud native certification services working group. We also engage with the buy-in project, which is focused on creating a set of API standards. And then we are uh, as yet to announce, but have already inked the paperwork. How does Red Hat participate in the OS climate project? 
including creating a data exploration platform for that group of folks who are looking at creating open source software and a community around how to use data to inform financial investments with a view to sustainability and risk to those investments because of climate. Instead of thinking about community from the perspective of how does my one project interact with the rest of the world, it's how does my one organization interact with the wide world of communities that operate in a particular vertical space? So is it you know automotive, FSI, telco, healthcare, et cetera? I really like that description. That was incredibly eloquent. What strikes me, which I want to make sure hits all of our listeners, is that you work often within the framework of an open source program office, right? The OSPO defines how this work is done in the sense that it institutionalizes how you would liaise with open source communities. Now, when you think about most open source communities, you kind of have a couple developers, maybe a project, and maybe they're tied to funders or something, but it's a very small community that's very focused on the projects at hand. For you, you're much more focused on, well, I work for this very large institution. How do we actually talk to open source communities in general? So one of the things I'm curious is, what do you think about the OSPO concept in general? And how do you see it growing and changing, say, in the past five years as you've been doing this exact work? Okay, wow. I have so many different things to say. So I will try to choose one. Open-ended on purpose. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I totally do. So one thing that I have noted about the concept of an open source program office is that it is really morphed from being something that was entirely focused on how does a corporation do license compliance to make sure that it is using open source software in an appropriate way? And you know, how do we make sure that if we are open sourcing code created within our corporation, that it is clear how folks can contribute or why they would want to consume the software to being a group of folks who are typically responsible in greater or lesser degree for being change agents within an organization. And I'm seeing this not just in corporations, but I'm seeing this in governments and I'm seeing this in academic institutions as well. So this whole idea of taking open source principles of everything from we do all of our work in the open to we prefer and insist upon peer review by default to we welcome contributions from all quarters and we want to ensure that there is respect for all of our contributors as a part of our process. It's something that is truly a delight to behold. I mean, I would not have come on this podcast two years ago and said, hey, check it out. Germany now has an open source program office. But turns out that this vehicle is seen as a useful means for not only folks actually consuming open source software and then figuring out ways to contribute back to open source software projects, but actually being able to lead entire institutions towards more open and more collaborative ways of working across that institution and with other entities. Once again, you are incredibly eloquent. You mentioned the German Open Source Program Office, which I'm just going to shorten to OSPO because it really is a mouthful. Cool. German OSPO is really interesting because it's great to see OSPOs being recognized at the state or government or city level. Besides the work that I do at Sustain, I also run a community called OSPO++, which focuses on like actually doing this work. But it's cool to have your perspective on it. One of the scariest things that's most relevant around national OSPOs is that they're often framed in terms of cybersecurity because that's one of the ways you get funding from politicians. And we've had Amanda Brock talk about this a tiny bit before when she was on here for Open UK. And I think we've had a few other people sort of touch on this issue. Can you talk about digital sovereignty and the movement towards open source program offices focusing on that? Yes, absolutely. So those who are not familiar with this concept of digital sovereignty, just the really quick rundown is this idea that folks in Europe are, I would say, for some good reasons and for some bad reasons, um, deeply concerned about making sure that there is control of 
IT infrastructure and data and everything associated with just having a technological life, which turns out is now true of every citizen. And there is, I will say, especially given my past employers, there is legitimate concern for what does it mean if your IT infrastructure is outsourced to someone far, far away from you who is not necessarily beholden to the same laws or to the same value system of the place in which you reside. And I think it's actually really interesting because it used to be that the Open Source Program Office for Germany was actually the Office of Digital Sovereignty. And they've actually changed their moniker to being the OSPO because the concept of digital sovereignty had morphed into this notion that we wanted to create a future for Europe in which, you know, it was kind of Europe for Europeans, but not in the way where it was just framed as, you know, we want to make sure our citizens can be assured that if their data is in the cloud, that that data is not going to be used in a way that is not in keeping with their rights and freedoms. I mean, I've literally heard people in meetings say, we need European open source that is created by Europeans and can only be used by Europeans. And that is digital sovereignty. And I have rants about that, which I will not subject anyone to unless you ask for them. But it was really exciting. A few um, weeks ago, I got to moderate a panel with several folks who were focused on open source and open standards and what that meant for the future of Europe and creating citizen-centric solutions for government agencies. And Pia Karger, who is the head of the Open Source Program Office in Germany, you know, pointed out that one of the reasons why there was this change in the name of the, the office that she chairs was because this notion of digital sovereignty and being, let's create open source that is exclusively to be contributed to by Europeans and is exclusively to be used by Europeans was not in keeping with the value system that folks in her, her office wanted to enact, nor with Germany in general. So instead, you know, she pointed out digital sovereignty is not about excluding people from contribution or excluding people from participation. It's about ensuring that there is freedom of choice and also not any, uh, I'm going to use words from a long time ago when I worked in semiconductor business. You don't want to do any single sourcing of any particular vendor or any particular, you know, one place where you're going to get all of your technology. If you're any organization, I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's that the entire world's supply chains are fragile, both in the production of software or in the production of, you know, manufactured goods. So digital sovereignty for Germany has become about making sure that there is freedom of choice and freedom of innovation and technology. And they see open source and open standards as being the critical underpinning to that. And also this notion of the open source program office as a locus for collaboration, not only within a particular government agency or within the bounds of a particular country, but also to give these different groups who are focused on open source software and open standards, the ability to collaborate amongst one another and share best practices. And this moniker of the OSPO is this critical anchor because turns out if you describe your work using common language, it's very easy for folks to connect to one another and be able to do that knowledge sharing and best practice and collaboration because they can actually find each other. And it sounds so very basic, right? That surely everybody who's working on open source can find each other. Well, not if you're in the office of the Ministry of the Interior in the Secretariat of... IT systems in the office, you know, blah, blah, and so on. So that was probably very long-winded, but yes, OSPOs is a locus of collaboration, my friends. And not just, again, not just corporations figuring out how to get more developers to be excited about their software offerings, but also as a 
an opportunity for people to collaborate, to co-create, and to share that amongst other folks with similar problems. Hopefully, not just enabling people to to save money because you know open source software licensing means that you know you have lower total cost of ownership, but because actually, like, why on earth are we spending public budgets to recreate the same set of software solutions? over and over and over again when we could share these things and then spend some of that money on uh, citizen services and creating citizen-centric solutions. I love that. You actually just put to rest a lot of the qualms I've had around digital sovereignty because it does sound very much America first, Netherlands second. You know, it's kind of like this weird... Yes. <laughs> this weird thing. And, and I, I didn't like it. But if you think about it as like freedom of choice, that leads to a more sustainable open source ecosystem. That's exactly what we're all about. Let's allow people to have freedom of choice and avoid vendor lock-in, which is a huge problem, not just for proprietary systems, but also for open source. So I just want to say thank you. Errol, do you want to go ahead? Sure. Leslie, you said a phrase that I zeroed in on in your last uh, answer to a question, which was citizen-centric. And this phrase to me sounds a lot like a rephrasing of something that is really familiar to me as a designer, which is human-centered. So I'm really curious to hear you talk more about examples that you've seen where humans and users and citizens have been centered at the creation of various open source software projects. So I admit to not having a great deal of depth on this particular topic. I learned mostly about this from a wonderful woman whose name I'm blanking on right now, and I will hopefully remember it as I continue talking, uh, Miss Claudia Barroso, I have succeeded, uh, who is uh, with the Administrative Modernization Agency of Portugal. And she walked us through an entire docket of ways in which as Portugal was uh, putting together their uh, set of citizen services, how they literally engaged hundreds of technologists to work directly with users in order to make sure that when they were creating not only their backend office systems, but their user-facing systems for folks to do everything from register at the town hall to understanding you know, what the restrictions were for travel, et cetera, in the face of COVID, and not only making sure that they were interfacing with the back-end users of these back-end systems to make sure that they met the needs of the public administration officials who were doing these on-the-ground day-to-day work, but that they were also talking to the people who were going to be using all of this software as Portugal was having this focus on moving towards more and more digital and online services. And then not only did she take us through their entire evolution, but then pointed out the different ways in which their agency also accounted for the fact that this digital first future that they were envisioning was going to leave a lot of citizens behind. People who did not have access to a computer or who didn't have access to be able to register for these essential services and people who were uncomfortable using technology, people who were uncomfortable with sharing their data over the internet because they felt secure speaking to someone in a local office whom they may have known for years within their community. And when I think about what it means to me, at least, what citizen-centric work in open source, especially when we're talking about the rise of the open source program office for cities and for national governments, it's really about engaging your public in the decision-making process for all of the systems that you're implementing, not just because you think it's a good checkbox to have, but because as someone who works with user experience, I can't believe I'm saying these words to you. If you do not talk to your actual users, you have absolutely no idea what they need and whatever you produce is going to not 
actually meet the needs of anyone except whoever has been sitting in the back working diligently based on their own perception of the situation, which may be more or less limited. And they've got a lot of really cool post-it notes and an amazing Kanban board and not a full picture of what is actually required by all of the folks who need to engage with that system in order to be successful in their day-to-day life. Perfectly put and music to my ears as a user experience person. It's great to hear that there are governments and the OSPO offices out there doing this work. And I think that actually we don't hear a lot about it in the community or we don't hear enough about it in this community. So I'm so glad that we got that really great rundown of how it can be done really well. Thank you. Thank you. I also will note for the sake of the podcast, but also for the sake of the folks who are on the podcast together with me, that I will send a link to this panel where Ms. Pia Carter and Ms. Claudia Barroso were talking about both of these topics so that they can be included in the show notes because I didn't do their remarks justice. I don't normally shamelessly plug talks that I was engaged in mostly because I don't like hearing the sound of my own voice, but I would suggest that folks take a minute to listen. I left that panel and I thanked all of my panelists and I cried. I could not believe the work that is being done in my newfound home to ensure that everyone has a secure and safe future. Where I come from, people don't. I don't think people think about that a lot. And I'm really happy to be here. I really feel that. I lived in Europe for a long time. I lived in Germany for two years. And I moved back to the States because I felt like I wasn't involved in what was going on here. I felt like I was just sort of leaving my country behind. And I I miss certain things like the endless pot of coffee. Now that I've been back in the States for three years or so, since living, you know, nine out of my 10 years of my 20s abroad, I've noticed the huge lack of community spaces and the huge lack Mm -hmm. of multi-generational care that goes on here. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist in certain places. I mean, I live in Vermont. Vermont's all about that sort of stuff, right? We're all about trying to make sure that, you know, our maple trees continue growing and that our farms are sustainable and that our healthcare is good. But Vermont's a small island. And even here, there's things like, you know, I miss just talking to people at a city square. And that's something where I feel like Europe is, is a whole lot better at organizing community spaces and organizing cities and governments to actually care for the long-term rights and also just lifestyle of their citizens. So I'd be curious to learn what made you move to Germany in the first place and how that's reflected in the work that you're doing at Red Hat. How do you feel like those are two of the same points, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Okay. So I promised real talk and I will do real talk. So I came to Europe in 2013, and this was a combination of a desire on my part to always have wanted to to live abroad and broaden the context of my existence and something that I just, it was a dream I had never been able to fulfill until that time for various reasons. The time when I departed, I also, for no particularly good reason that I could have cited as evidence, like I felt the way that America was going was not only not in keeping with my value system, but I also felt like my own personal work to change the political landscape of America had not been successful to the point where I felt like I could do a good job anymore and I could not continue to exhaust myself trying to push against that particular wall. So I went to Europe in the hopes that not only would I be able to find a fresh perspective for myself and kind of reinvigorate myself with hope for useful progress, not just capitalism's version of progress, let's just be honest. And, you know, also letting my my friends and family know that, you know, as I continued my own quest for the understanding of how to architect an intentional community, that maybe Europe would be a better home for an intentional community I hope to one day create. So I originally lived in the Netherlands. Uh, I was sponsored to work there and I really did love the Netherlands, but I ended up moving to Germany because I became the mother of a little German citizen. And something that I'll share with the listeners of this podcast, I am the mother of a young woman who is fairly visually impaired. 
And part of our reason for moving to Germany was that the healthcare and the benefits here for folks who are severely disabled, not that I like using that particular word, but that's what it says on the card, severely disabled, was superior. And it's been interesting to me coming to Germany for my own personal reasons. And also um, I have an entire love letter to write to how Germany provides care for its citizens who have additional needs. But in coming here at just the time I did, and with just the focus that I have, it has been fascinating. It's not like Germany is any stranger to open source software and its value. And, but to watch the rise in the emphasis on open source software and open systems and how open organizational principles are an important part of Germany's future, and not only just in terms of digital sovereignty as freedom of choice, but also this entire need to open up traditional ways of thinking in order to accommodate the needs of aging population that is also undergoing drastic change in terms of immigration into this country, while at the same time looking to sustain a cultural value system that is authentically German and also simultaneously getting indoctrinated into German working culture at Red Hat by a bunch of folks who will right off the bat tell you Red Hat isn't like a lot of other employers that you'll encounter, Leslie, but you know, at Red Hat in Germany, we're not particularly hierarchical. So don't be surprised when we take you on customer visits and we act very differently. And I did encounter really quickly that, you know, for someone who grew up in California where, you know, everybody wore jeans and flip-flops to the office on super formal Mondays. I will just put that out there. Sometimes uh, German business culture is what we would consider very traditional. So I ended up kind of here because of life circumstances. It was not some hugely planned exercise, but I will write a brief love letter to my employer and that they have always been incredibly supportive of my career. And they've always been incredibly supportive of making sure that they create opportunities for women leaders as well as other DEI uh, communities within Red Hat. So the fact that my employer did not bat an eyelash when I said, I need to move to Germany because I need to do this for my daughter's health and well-being and I need help to do it. And then they funded me being able to do it. And no one thought to question that which is, would not have been true at previous employers. It's pretty cool. No, it's, it's a very legitimate thing to love. I mean, all the people I've interacted with at Red Hat have said very, very similar things. I'm trying to draw a corollary, and maybe it's a bit forced, between the actual infrastructure we set up for citizens and how we think about that and the digital commons together. Because I think open source is collectively one of the greatest things that humanity has kind of done. We take a lot of code and we put it out there in public and people can use it. Whether or not that's used for good or not, or in drones is kind of, you know, always an open question for me. Whether it leads to vendor lock-in is always kind of an open question for me. And is, is that a problem? But in terms of actual having things in the comments, it does seem to work very well. And that seems more forward thinking. And I think the Germans are very, very good at that. One of my questions for you, having heard what you just said, and thank you for sharing, like I said, that really is Real talk, hashtag life goals. And I don't mean that, you know, satirically. I'm just, I'm really glad to hear actual conversation. Not to say our other guests aren't always fantastic. They are. Leslie, why do you feel that the Ospo at Red Hat is the place where you can affect the most change? And can you say that without praising Red Hat too much? Not that Encomium isn't good. I just want to figure out how you are doing ecosystem level change in this particular position and where Mm -hmm. you think it will lead you over, you know, the next few years. Okay, so I am going to do complete real talk here. I think that the position that I am in right now is allowing me to affect real ecosystem change because I work at an organization that is supportive of me not only doing my day-to-day business work, but also absolutely 100% supports me spending my time and energy sprinkling what I 
metaphorically refer to as open source fairy dust across the wide group of folks that I encounter on a day-to-day basis who are working in open source projects and communities and to provide mentorship and to provide connections between those folks. So when I look at my objectives, you know, as far as like, what am I going to get a bonus for this quarter or whatever? I have a whole bunch of, you know, very typical bullet points, but at the same time, I also understand that when I talk to my colleagues about the work that I am doing in communities, what they value just as much as, you know, did I produce a particular presentation or whatever, is that I have had the opportunity to help people to succeed in their open source project community commitments. And it and and they are honestly just as excited about the work that I do to help enable people who are working on open technologies, open source software, and open standards when it doesn't impact Red Hat's business bottom line at all. It is unfathomable to me the number of conversations that I have had with Red Hat senior leadership where I have mentioned my conversation with someone who's working in a humanitarian-focused open source project and how on work time, you know, I spend two hours a week mentoring this group of folks who are trying to put together a new community and to hear how glad they are to see that we are putting the values of open source software and open collaboration and open organizations to work in making the world a better and more sustainable place, even when it has, we're never going to ink a deal from that. We're never going to see revenue from that. And I get genuine support and genuine affirmation from my senior leadership as well as my peers for doing that kind of work. And I, I hate... Okay, I, let's just be honest. Like like many community humans, I may sometimes suffer from vast amounts of imposter syndrome. So I never want to toot my own horn and be like, I know stuff. But I've been working in communities now for a very, very long time. And I value the fact that people come back to me years later and tell me that a conversation that we had that didn't mean very much to me because I have a lot of conversations with a lot of really brilliant people where they ask me for my thoughts and I tell them, and I don't think I've necessarily said anything that profound, but then they come back to me years later and say, that was the conversation that changed this, that changed this, that changed this for me. And now this is what I've been able to do. And I want to thank you. And now that I know that I can do stuff like that, even when I don't realize that I'm doing it, that I'm being a quote unquote, super connector, the fact that I work in an environment where that's valued, that that's encouraged, that people just innately understand the importance of being the person who needs to tell someone the right thing at the right time because it is true. And that that's going to move the technology state of the art. That's going to move the community state of the art. That's going to move the progress of all sentient beings towards something that is better for them means a lot to me. It really does. That makes sense to me. And we've had other guests in this podcast who have shared similar things. I mean, Dominic Tars. Like the main takeaway from that podcast was do what you love doing. If it's open source, do open source. If it's not maintaining, don't maintain. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of this like thing of like, be a good person, the open source will follow, which I think is like one of the takeaways where I keep saying, you know, people who are successful at managing open source communities tend to think about the people first and the project second because projects come and go, but the code will remain. Eric Berry, Gunner, do you have any other questions? I could take us back to an earlier topic. You know, one of the things that's compelling about the work you do at Red Hat is Red Hat is a company with free and open source software in its DNA. It was started around Linux distro and it has continued to be true to the norms and the values of free and open source. There are a broader range of companies that have open source program offices where open source is, to put it kindly, not in their DNA. And Mm -hmm. we wrestle with that issue in the sustained community and how to sort of perceive participation of companies in open source ecosystems. 
I'm curious if you have either a taxonomy of how you think about different types of open source program offices and their motivations or contributions to uh, open source communities and alternately any guiding principles that you think any accountable open source program office or officer might want to be following or guided by. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Okay. So I think that there are any number of organizations who now have open source program offices and they are really all about fulfilling various corporate objectives. And I think that that's perfectly fine. Corporations have corporate objectives. That's what they do. So if your job as a corporate open source officer is to ensure license compliance and, you know, to make sure that GitHub repositories are set up appropriately or whatever is your job, that's great. At the same time, I got started in open source, not as early as some, but early enough in my career to remember when the conversations that we were having were around, you know, I create this software because it is an expression of my personal value system and because I value the freedom of other people to use it and to expand upon it and to make it work for them for their own particular needs, whether or not there's a profit motive behind it. And I think one of the things that I tried to do partially because I was young and naive and partially because I believed in it when I was an early employee of Google's open source program office was we chose to invest in communities that were doing good work because at the time, Google's motivation for participating in open source communities was Google was very tight-lipped about all of its work, didn't give a, a lot of detail to the public, but we needed something that we could talk about and we could talk about open source software and Google's use of open source software and what was the value of open source software. And you know, my remit was to go and sprinkle open source fairy dust on communities and make sure that folks were well-funded for their efforts. I mean, that's how I met you, Gunnar, was I had a budget and you needed to host a hackathon. And there we were, right? And we've been working together on and off ever since, more off than on lately, but that's okay. At least I get to see you for Indian food now and again. And I think that my charge to folks who are working in open source offices is to think back to the words that Richard said earlier, projects come and go, your employer is going to come and go. All of those things are fungible, but your relationships with the human beings with whom you interact is not fungible. It does not come and go. People are going to remember how you made them feel. People are going to remember what their interaction with you was like. Did they get trust? Did they get respect? Did they get genuine concern for good outcomes for them? And if you're going to be looking at your investment strategy as a corporate open source officer, don't just be looking at whether or not you think that your open source strategy is going to provide you with developer acquisition that's going to provide you with specific ROI or allow you to hit some vague milestone. Ask yourself if you think that how you are investing is going to make people feel good about the decision you have made. And that is not to say that you have to please everyone. But do you think that people that you respect will feel good about the decision that you have made? Because I see so many companies screaming from the tops of whatever mountain they can find that you know they want to make sure that they have authentic engagement with their users and they want to make sure that people feel really good about their brand. And the answer is authentic engagement and people feeling good about your quote unquote brand is how you treated them when you had nothing to gain. And if you don't invest purely along the lines of, oh, like I can tie this to a bottom line corporate goal. It's like, was this a good idea? Do you have time to support that idea either with some words of wisdom from your mouth? Do you have time to support that with some of your employee time? Do you have time to support that with some of your budget? Do you have time to support that by making introductions for folks in the community to one another who are like-minded and it takes a fraction of your day to do that? And we know we all have busy days, but did you do it? If that's the way you're operating in open source projects and communities, that's great. You may work for an employer that I don't respect and that's okay, 
but I am going to consistently be proud that you are my friend, my colleague, someone that I know. And that's the kind of corporate open source program officer that you want to be. You want to be somebody that is genuinely respected because you show genuine respect for other people, regardless of what the dollar, euro, pound, won value is that interaction, right? Do not value return on investment from a capital perspective, value return on investment from what will be made in the world because you committed your time and your care to this interaction. And you can't give your time and your care to every interaction, but don't deprioritize those that don't have a monetary value return. And I will also tell everybody based on my own experience, which I understand is unique to me, but It is not as though the investments of time and care that I have made in the past that I made because I thought it was something to spend my time on and something to care about have not had monetary return for me, right? Like I'm working at Red Hat in the open source program office because people saw the way I invested my time and care. And that's why I'm here now. But if that's your primary motivation when you're working in open source projects and communities, you're not going to get the best out of any investment you make. I don't think that just applies to corporate. I think it applies to pretty much all open source communities as well. Leslie, thank you so much. That's an excellent place to both start from and also to wrap up because we are running short on time. Before we move on to the spotlight, I wanted to make sure people know where to follow you online. Do you have a blog? Do you have Twitter accounts, et cetera? I do. So you can follow me on Twitter at L Hawthorne, which I post to irregularly because I am one of those people who uh, does not consume as much social media as I used to for my own mental health and well-being reasons. You can find me on LinkedIn. I think my username is Leslie Hawthorne. And I have a very neglected blog, hawthornelandings.org, which at least should give you like an updated corporate bio at some point. Really, as a human living in the times of the pandemic and also being the mother of a, a young child, you know, honestly, the best place to find me is if you want to find me and you need some of my time, I have something called the Taco Principle which does not work so well when we are all on Zoom together, not in person. But I used to have this policy called everybody gets tacos. So if anybody ever asked me for any of my time, I would say, sure, let's go get tacos. And, you know, it takes like 15 minutes to a half an hour to eat some tacos. And, you know, at the end of it, either we had something useful to work on together or we didn't. And it was totally cool at the end of it because everybody had tacos. So in now our, our entirely virtual world, I'm pretty easy to find. So, you know, if you want to connect and you want to talk shop, that's great. As long as we're both respectful of each other's time, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a good conversation. Public service announcement to every human being ever, and I'm sure probably not needed by the folks who listen to this podcast. If someone offers you their time and their energy and they need to reschedule because they have personal life commitments, do not send them nasty grams about how they rescheduled your call. Pet peeve, hashtag thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Hopefully none of us did that. You all are so understanding of my nonsense. I love you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. That leads right into our next session. So Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, whatever that we feel just need the spotlight shed on them. I'm going to go first because someone who's been very understanding of me in the past and someone who makes me feel good is Kat Allman. So Kat Allman is my spotlight. She works at Google. She has worked in the hospital there for a while. Now she's working mainly on science stuff. I really can't recommend enough how much this person just makes me feel good every time I talk to her, which is why I continue to move in spaces where she is. So thank you, Kat Allman. Eric Berry, what is your spotlight? I found this uh, show that was recommended to me by a buddy. And uh, very rarely do I find a show that is just purely happy. I battle with depression quite a bit. And this is one of those shows that just pulls me right out. The show that I'm talking about is Ted Lasso on Apple TV. So if you haven't watched it, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Love that. Thank you. 
Errol Fox, what do you got? I have been following a project that Daniel Berka has been doing for a little while. He works at Resolve to Save Lives. He's the head of design there, I believe, or some kind of design role. And recently he worked on a project with a number of other designers in open source to create a repository of health icons, completely open source. So you can find that Resolve to Save Lives GitHub slash health icons. Thank you very much. I love that too. Gunner. Yeah, I continue to be preoccupied with the relationship between open hardware and open source and the fact that if we don't really address open hardware, we're leaving a pretty low ceiling on all the potential of open source long term. And a community I've been working with increasingly over the year is the Gathering for Open Science Hardware, openhardware.science. I may have shouted them out before. I keep loving them. They are just doing such innovative community work around open hardware, open science hardware and open hardware in general. Thank you so much. We had Steve Helvey on the podcast recently. It's a great podcast for those of you who haven't listened to it yet about open hardware further. You can check that out. Leslie Hawthorne, what is your spotlight today? Before I get into my spotlight, I just want to say two really quick things. One, Kat Allman. Kat, I don't get to talk to you enough. I used to share an office with you. You are an eternal bright spot in my life and the lives of so many other people. Thank you for being you. Eric, I also want to represent and say that I am someone who uh, has struggled with depression my entire life. And I want to compliment you on your bravery on calling that out and just saying those words aloud because it's hard to be brave about that sometimes. And it's hard to think that people are going to judge you. And thank you for saying it. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to say it and be brave as well. And last but not least, my current spotlight thing that gives me uh, joy is something that folks may never hear of outside of this podcast. But I had the opportunity a few months ago to get acquainted with a gentleman named Jan, who is putting together a project called Smart to Buy R. And this is a village in Sweden. And when I say a village, I mean a very small group of folks in the hundreds who live together in a village who have put together an entire smart city for their village using entirely open source software and open hardware in order to take readings on their city. And they've also opened up their framework so that students at research universities can run experiments to see what inputs into the village produce particular outputs. And they're not just doing things like monitoring the temperature or monitoring moisture. They're also eventually evolving the system to collect metrics for things like if we get a shipment of strawberries into the local supermarket, does that increase citizen happiness? What happens if we then run a campaign to let folks know that eating sustainably and locally produced produce is better for the environment? So a shout out to Jan and all of his colleagues for putting that together and putting together a system that people are literally spending millions of dollars on with entirely open source software and open hardware and getting it together in a matter of weeks when I know of large corporations who are trying to put together similar things and it has taken them years to get a third as far. So thank you, Smart to Buyer, for being there. That is the coolest thing I've heard of this week. I would love to have the link for that for the show notes. That's just really great. Leslie, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Before we wrap up, I want to say a couple of final words. Eric Berry and Leslie, I also have suffered with depression my entire life. So just thank you for pointing out, Leslie, that that's something that is hard to say. And Eric, thank you for continuing to be just incredibly honest and open. For those of you who had followed along and had thoughts and wanted to say, but why didn't you ask this question? I highly recommend that you check out the Sustained Community. This is not just a podcast. This is a community. And we are working harder to make sure that you have space to do stuff after listening to this podcast. So if you have something you want to work on, if you have a thought, 
We have a discourse, which you can always use. We also have a Twitter and a Slack. It is the Open Collective Slack. Jump on, say hi. All of us hosts are very approachable. And it sounds like Leslie Hawthorne is too, especially if you want tacos. So highly suggest that you check out the sustained community in general. Uh, and with that, Leslie, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much and uh, have an excellent weekend. Thank you for the honor of your company, everyone.